tonight for the book of Ezekiel, especially after last week's lesson, which was one of the most heart-wrenching times in the history of the nation of Israel, where we got to see uh, the Spirit of God leave the temple. It is one of the most heart-wrenching times for Ezekiel, being a priest, never having served in the actual temple itself, but being able to go into not only a holy place, but the holy of holies and watch the Holy Spirit of God leave that place, go out to the outer entrance, and then go out to the court, and then go out to the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem, and then leave uh, the city. And for 70 years, the Spirit of God is not going to be here on the earth in uh, Jerusalem uh, until Ezra and Nehemiah come back and the temple is rebuilt. And so the question that the people are going to have for the next 40 chapters in the book of Ezekiel is where is God? Where is God in the midst of our having to go to another foreign country? Where do we worship? There is no altar. There is no temple. There is no place where I can go to. It's a, it's a privilege that we truly take for granted having the Holy Spirit live inside of us. But the scary warning that we see from the book of Ezekiel is the people chased God away. It was their sins that chased God out of uh, the temple. Uh, Those that were there that were worshiping the sun, those that were there worshiping the idols of the ites, the other nations around them, had chased God out of uh, the temple. Uh, The warning is there even for us, what separates us from God It's sin. Sin always uh, puts a barrier between us and God. The Holy Spirit isn't the only one that's going to be leaving uh, Jerusalem. We're going to find out tonight that the last king of Israel, the last king in Jerusalem, the last king from the line of uh, David himself, the last king who is going to be called a king in Jerusalem until the Messiah takes place there in the millennial kingdom, the last king of Judah is going to try and escape as well. We learn this story in chapter 12 of Ezekiel. I'm so glad that you guys are here on a a Wednesday night. I appreciate you guys being here, even though you could be doing anything else. Uh, You could, you know, have all the excuses. It's the middle of the week. I'm tired. All those things that we always say. Uh, But I am so glad that you guys are here tonight. Uh, So please, as we read this section, uh, allow the Lord to speak to your heart. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Again, a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, you live among rebels who have eyes but refuse to see. They have ears but refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious people. So now, son of man, pretend you are being sent into exile. Pack the few items an exile could carry. Uh, Leave your home to go somewhere else Do this right in front of the people so that they can see you. For perhaps they will pay attention to this, even though they are such rebels. 
bring your baggage outside during the day so they can watch you. Then in the evening, as they are watching, leave your house as captives do when they begin a long march to distant lands. Dig a hole through the wall while they are watching and go out through it. As they watch, lift your pack to your shoulders and walk away into the night. Cover your face so you cannot see the land you are leaving. For I have made you a sign for the people of Israel. So I did as I was told in broad daylight. I brought my pack outside, filled with the things I might carry into exile. Then in the evening, while the people looked on, I dug through the wall with my hands and went out into the night with my pack on my shoulder. Verse 8. The next morning, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man... These rebels, the people of Israel, have asked you what all this means. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. These actions contain a message for King Zedekiah in Jerusalem and for all the people of Israel. And so, Father, then tonight as we approach your amazing throne... As we get a privilege of uh, getting a glimpse of what it is like, not only for the people of Israel in a foreign country, uh, far away from their homeland, and then to see their cowardly king try to sneak away. Lord, uh, we, we know as we've been reading that judgment starts on the house of God. The judgment starts on, on the leadership. And judgment starts and, and the, the priests and the elders and those that are in charge of the spiritual welfare of, of the people. And, and tonight we get to see the king himself slink away, tail between his legs, scared. And so Lord, help us to examine our own hearts, Lord. Those of us that, whether it's in a leadership position in our, our home, our work, our, our church, whatever it may be. We would truly examine our own hearts, Father. And that, that tonight, all those things that may be uh, vying for our attention and our brain, the, the worries of the day or the stresses that we've had to uh, deal with, uh, the problems that we've had to solve or not solve or procrastinate on, Lord, help us to leave those things outside. And help, help us to really understand your word tonight, to be able to apply it for ourselves today, tonight. That, that we would see ourselves in this story, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the examples of, of the Old Testament prophets, especially as we're in the book of Ezekiel, that you would uh, speak volumes to our own heart tonight, that you would convict us, Lord. We love you so much for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. So we, we see as we've been seeing a lot of these um, uh, examples, these physical examples, these outward showings of, of what Ezekiel has to do, whether it was the bread cooked over uh, the dung, uh, whether it was the various, you know, 
role-playing games or war games that he had to, you know, build in front of uh, the people, what was going to happen to the city of uh, Jerusalem. And now he's having to act out as if he were leaving the city of Jerusalem as the last king of uh, Jerusalem. And you remember who King Zedekiah was, if you were here when we were going through the book of, of Jeremiah. Zedekiah is the last living king in Jerusalem, descended from the line of David. Uh, he, he's the last one that's going to be called king until the Messiah sits on the throne in the millennial kingdom. When, when Jesus Christ comes back and, and literally sits on the throne... Uh, after the people come back to the land, there's going to be no more kings. It's all going to be governors. That's all they're going to be. Uh, and the ones that are put up as the Roman government, they're not descended from the line of David. Uh, they're just uh, puppet kings. And so King Zedekiah being the last of the kings, what is he doing? He's trying to sneak away. Uh, rather than you know, not only standing up spiritually, uh, but in terms of his political power, being able to stand up against Babylon, what is he doing instead? On his hands and knees, digging a hole through the wall. Trying to slink away in the middle of the night, carrying the little stuff that he has, trying to escape death. And you guys remember what happened to King Zedekiah. In fact, we get a little glimpse of that in the next section here. Look what it says there in verse 12. Even Zedekiah will leave Jerusalem at night through a hole in the wall, taking only what he can carry with him. This king who literally had wealth beyond all measure, what is he having to take with him? First of all, it tells you, you know, the value of things. You know, when your life is on the line, what are you going to take? Try as little as possible so you can get away as quickly as possible. But, but also as the king of Jerusalem, what should he be doing? Yeah, uh, encouraging his people, standing up, praying talking to God, actually being a person of leadership quality, acting like his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, David. Not only that, but what else? It says there at the end of the verse, he will cover his face and his eyes will not see the land he is leaving. And you guys know that we're here when we were going through the book of Jeremiah. What was the consequences of King Zedekiah? What, what did the king of Babylon do to King Zedekiah? The, the last two sons, the last heritage were killed before his eyes and his eyes were plucked from his head. So the last thing he sees are his, his descendants, his two sons that are supposed to be uh, the kings. As he's cowardly leaving, killed before him. And he won't even see the land that he's leaving. He won't see the land that he's going to. He'll be captive for the rest of his life, blind. It says it there in verse 13, For the people that are there in Babylon, then I will throw my net over him, capture him in my snare. I will bring him to the land, Babylon, the land of the Babylonians, though he will never see it, and he will die there. 
Exactly what Jeremiah described in, in physical detail, actually being there, seeing this event happen. Ezekiel is telling the captives in Babylon what is going to happen to their king. But not only that, it says in verse 14, I will scatter his servants and warriors to the four winds, send the sword after them. When I scatter them among the nations, they will know that I am the Lord. But I will spare a few of them from death by war, famine, or disease so they can confess all their detestable sins to their captors. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now these, there's these words that are re repeated over and over again. Uh, in the first section we see this word watch repeated over and over again. And, and Ezekiel was called to be a, you guys all know, watchman, right? What's the first job of a watchman? They are to watch, exactly. And then to understand that all these captives that are be taken to foreign countries, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or scattered in Egypt and various other places throughout the known world at this time, what is going to be their testimony? What is there going to be their witness? It's no longer as a blessing. It's understanding that the Lord judges. Look, look at what it says there. It says, they will confess all their detestable sins to their captors. If God judges his people, what will he do to the foreigners? What will he do to those that aren't his people? This is scary, too. And you remember what Ezekiel is doing. He's there on the river Kibar. He's there with, with those in the, what was called the second captivity, uh, those that were the blue-collar workers, those that were chosen by Babylon to be used for their skills, for their you know, abilities. They're there in a foreign country, and, and these people that have been taken, this confession that they make, do not do the same things that we are doing. Because God is coming to judge. Even though there's a remnant, they would be witnesses of God's judgment to the nations. Verse 17, it continues on. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, tremble as you eat your food. Shake with fear as you drink your water. There's going to be two examples, two physical examples that Ezekiel is going to have to show to the people. The first one is him acting like the king, tail between legs, digging through this wall. The second one is the eating of the food. Because when you're on the run, how do you eat? Yeah, you don't have time to enjoy your food, right? You eat when you can. You're trying to get away as quickly as possible in fear. Ezekiel is literally eating his food, this little bread that he had to make, this little amount of water that he was allowed uh, to drink, this understanding that as he is doing this, it is an example of what the people of Israel are going to go through. Tell the people this is what the sovereign Lord says concerning those living in Israel and in Jerusalem. They will eat their food with trembling and sip their water in despair for their land will be stripped bare because of their violence. Not blaming the Babylonians, not blaming anyone else. Who is God blaming for the sins of Israel? Israel. 
It's because of their sins that they are being judged. The cities will be destroyed and the farmland made desolate. Then you know that I am the Lord. Every single one of these paragraphs end in the same exact phrase. What is the purpose of the judgment? To show the people that I am the Lord. To show the people of Israel that he is their God. Why would God spend his time disciplining his people? Just like any other good parent would do. Because he loves them. He loves them. He continues on there in the next uh, verse, verse 21. Again, a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, you've heard that proverb they quote in Israel. Time passes and prophecies come to nothing. Uh, tell the people, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will put an end to this proverb and you will soon stop quoting it. Now give them this new proverb to replace the old. Not only are there two examples, the example of Zedekiah trying to leave and, and Ezekiel pretending to eat as if he is in fear, his food, his water, but also now he's going to quote and contradict two proverbs. If you were here when we were going through the book of Proverbs, uh, 31 chapters written by King Solomon for the most part, uh, th those were amazing little, you know, nuggets of truth, nuggets of knowledge, nuggets that it could apply to any person that would apply them to their own life. The beginning of fear, uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Uh, all these beautiful proverbs that if you apply to your life uh, would bring value. They, they were as precious as rubies, as diamonds, all, all these valuable sayings. But there were other Proverbs floating around, too, that were false. These are two of them, by the way. And they both went against uh, true prophecy. The first one was, I hope these prophecies end. I, I wish Jeremiah would stop telling us about the doom and gloom. I wish Ezekiel would, would stop saying these things. I wish all those prophets of old would stop echoing in my mind. They hated the prophecies. They hated the prophets. In fact, they wished that they would come to nothing. But Ezekiel tells them a prophecy or a proverb that will supersede that one. It says, the time has come for every prophecy to be fulfilled. Wow. Can you imagine that? To live in the time when prophecy is fulfilled. Now, now we always look at that in terms of a, a good thing. To be here during the time of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ is actually walking here on the earth and, and seeing prophecy fulfilled, that would be amazing, right? But can you imagine the prophecies that Jeremiah and Ezekiel are telling and being there when they're being fulfilled? That's scary. Because the prophecies that they're telling, the temple's going to be destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are falling down. You're going to be taken captive to a foreign land because of your sin. 
The second one, verse 24, is there will be no more false visions and flattering predictions in Israel. For I am the Lord. If I say it, it will happen. There will be no more delays, you rebels of Israel. I will fulfill my threat of destruction in your own lifetime. I the sovereign Lord have spoken. God will not have patience. God will not wait any longer. What, what is a, one of the prophecies that are still waiting to be fulfilled, by the way, in our own lifetime? What's well, called the, the, yeah, the second coming, right? The, the privilege of seeing Jesus Christ come. Wow. How many of us have heard people say, you know, well, that's either not going to happen or it's going to happen a long time in the future. Or we've been waiting 2,000 years for it to happen. You know, it probably never will in our lifetime. Do people say the same exact prophecies today? The same exact proverb? The same exact arguments against prophecy? Oh, Yeah. Again, there is nothing new under the sun written 2,500 years, 2,600 years ago. These same things that the people were circulating, these proverbs of what is going to happen. It's God has been warning us over and over and over again for centuries, and he's never done anything. Ezekiel has to say it's going to be fulfilled in their very lifetime. In fact, in 26, this is where it continues on there. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man. The people of Israel are saying he's talking about the distant future. His visions won't come true for a long, long time. Therefore, tell them this is what the sovereign Lord says. No more delay. I will now do everything I have threatened. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Maybe you had a parent like this. I don't know. You know, they started counting or something, you know. Or, or, Or they said, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. And then eventually the warning stopped. That that point of no return, right? And the discipline happened. I, I don't know if you guys had parents like that, you know. But, but, but you understand what God is doing here. His patience has run out with his people. Judgment is coming. Second Peter chapter three, verse three, we read this. See if, I mean, just see if this applies to us. It's amazing. This was written 2,000 years ago, by the way. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. This is written by Peter, by the way. This is written by Peter, uh, the disciple of Jesus Christ, the one who betrayed him. Mocking the truth and following their own desires, they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Do you understand what people are saying? They're they're saying that that Jesus will never come back. He's had all this time to be able to come back, and he hasn't come back. 
By the way, Peter was there when he saw Jesus Christ ascend. It was Peter on the day of Pentecost that spoke in a foreign language so that everyone in the entire audience was able to hear him in their own language. Verse 5 of 2 Peter, it says, They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood, and by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, for dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. Wow. Do you understand why God is patiently waiting to return? So that people would be saved. So that people would turn from their sin. I don't know when you got saved, but what if God had come a day before you got saved? That would be scary. Do you understand why God is patiently waiting? It's for salvation the last one to come in. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Isn't that the love of God? Wow. And by the way, this is the same attitude that God had toward the people during the time of Ezekiel. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to come back. But what were they doing? Thumbing their nose at God, chasing him out of his temple, chasing him out of his house. Rebelling against him, as the word was that we saw repeated many, many times in Ezekiel. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it continues on. Just two more verses here. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. This, this is a fisherman writing this, by the way. Describing what it is like to, to, to literally pull apart elements at their atomic level. Before microscopes or electron microscopes were even invented, before elements were even truly understood, he's describing how the elements are going to be torn apart. And the earth and everything in it will be found to deserve judgment. By, by the way, you know, and we, we saw this when we were looking at the rainbow. The rainbow was just a promise that God would never destroy the world by flood or water. But how is he going to destroy the world at the end? Fire. Where literally the elements, so hot that the elements themselves will melt. 
Absolutely amazing. Thank God for the patience of God, by the way. Thank God for his patience for us. Ezekiel chapter 13, it continues on. And now again, we're going to see uh, uh, three more examples. We're going to see what it is like in terms of these, these outward showings, these outward prophecies, not just words, but actually actions that Ezekiel has to present uh, to the people. Chapter 13, then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, prophesy against the false prophets of Israel who are inventing their own prophecies. Say to them, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits the false prophets who are following their own imaginations and have seen nothing at all. That's the definition of a false prophet. Someone who makes things up. Someone who takes, whether it's their own idea or an idea that they've heard, and they make it into something that they want fulfilled. Literally falsifying God's word. It says there in verse 4, O people of Israel, these prophets of yours are like jackals. Digging in the ruins. They have done nothing to repair the breaks in the walls around the nation. They have not helped it to stand firm in battle on the day of the Lord. Instead, they have told lies and made false predictions. They say, this message is from the Lord, even though the Lord never sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their prophecies. Can your visions be anything but false if you claim this message is from the Lord when I have not even spoken it to you? And again, by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. What is your responsibility as the congregation, as the people of God? Uh, th thank, I mean, we, we go to a church where, thank God, we have multiple pastors that, that teach, uh, that literally search the Word of God, not only Pastor Mike Ostheimer, but the pr other pastors that are in charge of our youth, you know, throughout this campus. But do you understand why they do it? Not only that you would grow, that you would learn but that you would actually read it and see if they're telling you the truth. Do you just take my word when I come up here? I hope not. I hope you're, whether it's, you know, the pre previous week, because, you know, we just go straight through the Bible so you know where I'm going to be. You, you know that I was going to be at least in chapters 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 if we get there. Uh, but, but, you, but you know where we're going to be. You can be actually looking this stuff up yourself. Or if not, if you haven't been here before, you can look it up in the, the following week. You can come up here and ask questions of me anytime. I love it when people ask questions of me. Because it gives me an opportunity not only to go in more depth, but you get a little glimpse into you know, the study that goes behind this. Because I don't just come up here and, you know, say, oh, we're just going to start here and we're going to just go. Do you understand that it takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of time to prepare? It's a privilege to be able to do that. But the opportunity for you is that are you checking what I'm saying? Or am I just, you know, up here telling you whatever I want to tell you? 
It, it's our responsibility to make sure that those that are telling us, and, and not just in this church, but even if you're hearing something online or whatever it is, are you checking the scriptures? Are you examining for yourselves? The people weren't doing that, by the way. Verse 8, it continues on. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, because you because what you say is false and your visions are a lie, I will stand against you, says the Sovereign Lord. That is scary. That, that's why God always warns that teachers should be few. That, that's, that's why the warning of, of judgment being more severe on a, a teacher in a position of being able to teach the Word of God is such a strong warning because the judgment is severe on false prophets, false teachers. Who is against them? God himself, the sovereign Lord. It says, I will raise my fist against all the prophets who see false visions and make flying predictions and they will be banished from the community uh, of Israel. I will blot their names from Israel's record books and they will never again set foot in their own land. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. No longer I am the Lord, but now the sovereign Lord, the one who's in charge. I am the one that you should be listening to, no one else. Is the words that, being, that are being said coming from the direct word of God or just the imaginations of a person? The imaginations of someone just standing here. That, that's exactly what it says. It's just coming from their own imagination. Just their own experiences, their own, their own problems, their own whatever they're talking about. It's all coming from their own thoughts, not the word of God. Verse 10, this will happen because their evil prophets deceive my people by saying all is peaceful when there is no peace at all. But by the way, this is so tongue-in-cheek. This is so facetious. Literally, what they're saying is we are okay as the Babylonian army is surrounding them. That's exactly what Ezekiel is saying. You are so blind you have this massive army around you, and you're saying, peace, peace, everything is peace, right? It's scary, by the way. It's as if the people have built a flimsy wall, and these prophets are trying to reinforce it by covering it with whitewash or paint. That's all it is. That's all it is. And, and watered-down paint, by the way, too. Not, not the good stuff that you, you know, pay... 50 bucks for, 100 bucks for, whatever it is, you know. No, this is the, this is the whitewash. This, this is the, the leftover paint that's been mixed with water. That's what it is. No structure at all. They're whitewashing the walls. It's just the, you know, pre-wash. It's just the base coat. Verse 11, the, we tell these whitewashers that their wall will soon fall down. A heavy rainstorm will undermine it. Great hailstones and mighty winds will knock it down. And when the wall falls, the people will cry out, what happened to your whitewash? 
What happens when you leave anything outside in the elements? You know. Yeah. You know, it, it, even, even the best, you know, paint, even the best varnish, even the best whatever you put to protect it from the elements, what will happen? Yeah. What more with just watered down paint to verse 13. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will sweep away your whitewashed walls with the storm of indignation, with a great flood of anger, with hailstorms of fury. I will break down your wall right to its foundation. And when it falls, it will crush you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Literally, this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem's wall is going to fall down. Jerusalem's wall will be torn down. And not rebuilt until the time of uh, Nehemiah. At last my anger against the wall and those who covered it with whitewash will be satisfied. Then I will say to you, the wall and those who are whitewashed, it are both gone. They were lying prophets who claimed peace would come to Jerusalem when there is no peace. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Do you understand what the requirement of a prophet is? And this goes all the way back to, you know, the book of Leviticus. Do you understand what the requirement of a prophet of God is? And anyone that never met this requirement was considered a false prophet. The requirement for a true prophet of God is always, even today... 100% accuracy. Everything they say has to come true or else it's not from God. By definition, by, by the prophet of God being defined as who he is, he must, whatever he says, it must come true. And for many of the prophets, whether it happened in their own lifetime or later on, as in the case of Isaiah, who predicted that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin, would be born in the town of Bethlehem, Micah, would be a prophet king, Zechariah. All these amazing prophecies that we see in the prophets, they were fulfilled. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're just saying it's going to happen in your lifetime and you're going to see it. You're going to see it fulfilled in your lifetime. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there is a, um, a cost of being a false prophet. First Samuel chapter 15, there's this comparison. It's one of the... Um, most soul-wrenching, hardest things you could ever read about a prophet of God. It says this in 1 Samuel 15, 22, but Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? You, you can give money all you want. You can kill a thousand lambs doesn't matter what does god want your obedience listen obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better 
than the offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. Stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. Wow, what horrendous comparisons. Do, do you understand what it means when we disobey God or rebel against God? What is that comparison to? Devil worship. I'm choosing to worship the devil rather than God. Do you ever think of that when we sin? Do I ever think of that when I sin? Who are you choosing when you sin? You're choosing Satan. That's what you're choosing. You're choosing the devil. You're choosing to worship the devil. By the way, this was King Saul too. It says, so because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You see, King Saul had chosen not only uh, to give all these sacrifices, but to literally disobey God in keeping the best for himself when God had told him to kill it all. He had chosen to follow his own will, his own rebellion, his own stubbornness. And God is saying, it's as if you are committing, you know, these horrendous acts of witchcraft. You're turning your back on uh, God. By the way, God never whitewashes. God never uh, hides the truth. He specifically lays it out there for us. In black and white, our sins are detestable. Our sins are not, you know, little white lies or whatever we call them. Oops, mistakes, whatever. No, we're actually choosing the opposite of God. Verse 17, now son of man speak out against the women who prophesy from their own imaginations. God, of course, is a equal opportunity, you know, and... Uh, you know, first he talks about the guys, and now he's talking about the women, too. But by the way, are, are there prophetesses in the Bible? Is, is that real? Yes. I'll, I'll share with you some in, in just a little bit. But, but the warning is there against both, because not only are these prophets making up prophecies, but the prophetesses as well were doing the same. This is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 18, what sorrow awaits you women who are ensnaring the souls of my people, young and old alike. You tie magic charms on your wrists and furnish them with magic veils. Uh, do you think you can trap others without bringing destruction on yourselves? By the way, new age is not new. I mean, the charms, all the things that you see, you know, even in this chapter, you know, do we see it even today? This word, you know, charms that they would tie on their wrists, it was literally the joints. So it could have been on the wrists, the elbows, you know, various joints of the body, the ankles, different other parts of the body. You bring shame upon uh, me among my people for a few handfuls of barley or a piece of bread. That was their payment. By lying to my people who love to listen to lies. 
You kill those who should not die, and you promise life to those who should not live. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against all your magic charms, which you use to ensnare my people like birds. I will tear them from your arms, setting my people free like birds set free from a cage. And you see the difference between the the male prophets or the men prophets, you know, uh, theirs is from their own imagination. uh, But for the women, it's their charm. It's their deception. It's using their natural ability to be able to deceive. It says there in verse 21, I will tear off the magic veils and save my people from your grasp, they will no longer be your victims. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You have discouraged the righteous with your lies, but I didn't want them to be sad, and you have encouraged the wicked by promising them life, even though they continue in their sins. Because of all this, you will no longer talk of seeing visions that you never saw Nor will you make predictions, but I will rescue my people from your grasp. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Again, that phrase that is repeated over and over again. When you finally see the truth, it is God against you. Now, of course, a lot of people use this as a proof text. Oh, this, you know, so there should be no, you know, prophetesses. You know, the previous chapter, or the previous part of the chapter was against prophets. You can't use that argument. It's amazing. I, I, I love Philip. He, he's, he was the second deacon. You know, there was a group of deacons. The first guy uh, was the guy that, you know, actually was the first martyr, Stephen. He was a deacon. And in the next chapter, you have Philip, the reaching deacon. He was the one that was the first missionary that went to the the land of Samaria. He was the guy that talked to the Ethiopian eunuch, converted this guy that was in the upper echelons of the Ethiopian empire. But he had daughters. He, He didn't have any sons. He only had daughters. Listen to the description here in Acts chapter 21, verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, this is Luke describing his uh, missionary journey with Paul. Uh, we, we came to Potomus and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Now, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Uh, not, you know, addressing him as some other Philip, but literally Philip, one of those seven deacons, the original seven uh, deacons. By the way, he's the only one that's referred to in the entire Bible as an evangelist. Not even Paul is given to this title. It 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 was Philip that was given this title. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied by definition what is a person who prophesies that is a woman prophetess yeah he he had four daughters that prophesied right amazing the warning isn't against the you know the the sex or or the gender it's against you know the misuse of the title it's against the misuse of uh, the actual talent itself What were these amazing women doing with their ability to prophesy? They were telling people about Jesus Christ. 
amazing, absolutely in awe. Going back to Ezekiel chapter 14. <clears throat> this one, it, it, you have to stay with me on this one because this, this is one of those chapters in the entire Bible that has a, a, a series of words that's going to be repeated more times than any other chapter in the entire Bible, okay? So, so pay attention. I, I know you'll get it. I know you'll get it right away. Then some of the leaders of Israel visited me, and while they were sitting with me, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to their requests? Tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and fallen into sin, and then they will go to a prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture the minds and the hearts of all my people who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. Therefore, tell the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent and turn away from your idols and stop all your detestable sins. There's this phrase that's going to be repeated not only in chapter 14, but in the entire book of Ezekiel. This, this phrase, uh, the sovereign Lord or the Lord God in the, the King James Version is found 500 times in the Bible. 218 of those times are here in the book of Ezekiel. And in chapter 14, that, that means almost half of the title of God using not only his name, but his title in this one phrase are going to be found in the book of Ezekiel. More, more than almost half of the times in the Bible. And then in chapter 14, out of all the chapters in the Bible, we're going to see this title repeated more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. Do you think chapter 14 is important? If God is repeating his name and his title over and over and over and over again. Look at what it says there in verse 7. I, the Lord, will answer all those, both Israelites and foreigners who reject me, set up idols in their hearts and so fall into sin. And who then come to a prophet asking for advice? I will turn against such people and make a terrible example of them, eliminating them from among my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if a prophet is deceived into giving a message, it is because I, the Lord, have deceived the prophet. I will lift my fist against such prophets and cut them off from the community of Israel. False prophets and those who seek their guidance will all be punished for their sin. In this way, the people of Israel will learn not to stray from me, polluting themselves with sin. They will be my people and I will be their God. I the sovereign Lord have spoken. This is the second time we've seen the fist of God. And what is the fist of God doing? Hitting the false prophets. What is the fist of God doing? 
He's hitting those that are literally deceiving the people with false words, their own imaginations. Do you see that phrase, I the sovereign Lord have spoken? I, I the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord. It's going to be repeated many times in this chapter. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man. Suppose the people of a country were to sin against me. And I lifted my fist to crush them, cutting off their food supply and sending a famine to destroy both people and animals. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says the sovereign Lord. Do you understand, and this example is going to be used four times, by the way, what this, what this means. Even if there was these righteous people living in the land, I would not come and rescue those people. I, I wouldn't rescue the nation as a whole. The only people that would be saved would be these three righteous men. By, by the way, you know who these righteous men are, right? I, I know you all know Noah, right? That's the first one. He's, he's the guy that built the boat, right? You guys know that, right? Uh, yeah. You guys have went to Sunday school. I know. Yeah, it's great. Uh, or Job. You guys know Job, right? He's the guy that, you know, um, you know, not only was, you know, persecuted by Satan himself, he had to scrape his skin, all those boils. His wife, you know, said, just die, you know, just kill yourself, you know. Uh, you know, the understanding that Job went through horrendous things and was found righteous at the end. Do you guys know who Daniel is? He's the contemporary of Ezekiel. He, he was literally living during the time that Ezekiel was writing this. Except for he's up in, you know, the palace. You know, he, he, he got to mingle with the, the kings of Babylon, right? While Ezekiel's down by the river Kibar, you know, he didn't get to go to the palace. Do you understand what he's saying here? That even if Noah or Daniel or Job are living at this time, even in our own nation right now, God would just still destroy it. Remember the question that God came to with Abraham when, when Abraham said, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? What, what if you find 50 people there, 50 righteous people, right? God said, yes, I'll spare it. 40, yes, I'll spare it. 30, yes, I'll spare it. 20, yes, I'll spare it. 10, I'll, yes, I'll spare it. Do you understand, not only did God not find 50 people or 40 people or 30 people or even 10 people that were righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that even though Lot was considered a righteous man living in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, who were the only people that were saved? Lot and his two daughters. That's it. They, they were able to escape the judgment of God. And it's the same thing with these three people too. Noah, Daniel, and Job. It gets worse, by the way, and we'll be able to finish this chapter because it's fairly... Uh, repetitive here. 
It says, or suppose I were to send wild animals to invade the country, kill the people, and make the land too desolate and dangerous to pass through. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were there, they wouldn't be able to save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved, but the land would be made desolate. Wow, I can't even save my own children? My, my own children have to, you know, actually believe in God? I can't do it for them? There's whole denominations that are built upon that, by the way. Verse 19, uh, it says, Or suppose I pour out my fury, or excuse me, verse 17, sorry. Or suppose I bring war against the land, and I, I sent enemy armies to destroy both people and animals. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, even those three men were there, they wouldn't be able to save their own daughters, sons or daughters. They alone would be saved. Or suppose I were to pour out my fury by sending an epidemic into the land, and the disease killed people and animals alike. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, they wouldn't be able to save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved by their righteousness. War, uh, famine, uh, disease, all these horrific things that are going to be coming upon Israel. And you can't rely upon another person to save you. By the way, it's the same as true today. Can I pray a prayer of faith on behalf of someone else? None of us can. I can pray for them that they would believe in God. Yes, I can do that. But can I make them or pray a prayer for them to save them? No, none of us can. Because every one of us have to individually stand before God. We cannot claim Noah or, you know, Job or, or Daniel. You know, because they're righteous, I'm somehow righteous. No, none of us can. Verse 21, it ends like this. Now this is what the sovereign Lord says. How terrible it will be when all four of these things, these dreadful punishments fall upon Jerusalem. War, famine, wild animals, and disease, destroying all her people and animals. Yet there will be survivors, and they will come here to join you as exiles in Babylon. You will see them with your own eyes, how wicked they are. And then you will feel better about what I have done to Jerusalem. When you meet them and see their behavior you will understand that these things are not being done to Israel without cause. And the phrase that is repeated more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the entire Bible, I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Wow. God stamps his title. God stamps his name. God stamps his signature on every single one of these prophetic truths. We'll end it here in the New Testament, Matthew 19. And, and normally we, you know, we, we think of this, you know. Uh, I, I love, you know, when Jesus was asked questions, you know. Uh, Jesus always had these great responses. I wish I always, you know, could respond to people sometimes this way. Uh, but, but Jesus, you know, being God incarnate here on the earth, 
you know, he, he was asked many times, how can I be saved, right? You know, what, what, what's the process of salvation? In Matthew 19, verse 23, he, he was asked the same question. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich man or rich person, excuse me, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, no gender. Doesn't matter. I, I say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And now if you've ever, you know, Googled this or tried to search for this, there's all different kinds of responses to this. The response from the disciples is very telling because what they say is super important because they say in verse 25, the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They ask because this is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, not some hole in a wall that was named the eye of a needle. No, literally a sewing needle that has an eye that you yourself can't even put a thread through. Right? I know because I, I do that, you know. My wife asked me to do it many times, you know. Yeah, unless you have one of those sewing machines that have the nice little, you know, things that automatically do it for you. And by the way, there are those kind of things. But no, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, right? It's impossible. The disciples are saying, this is impossible. Who can be saved? None of us can be saved if, if it's possible. It's impossible. And what is Jesus' response? And I love this. I love this. I love this. Because the same is true for every single person in this room. You know it if you have been saved. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. It's impossible for any human to get into heaven. Any human, doesn't matter. But with God, everything is possible. Wow. If you look at the context, this isn't talking about some, you know, uh, name it and claim it prophecy type thing or, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity. God. No, this is talking about salvation. It is impossible for anyone to come to God without God. Impossible. Only through Jesus Christ can we know God. I can't do it on my own good works. I can't do it on my own righteousness, my own salvation. Nothing. I can't even save myself. Who is the only one that can save me? Who is the only one that can save you? It's only uh, Jesus Christ. By the way, next week, uh, and again, for those of you that have read ahead, you know this. We're going to be getting to a, a chapter that's forbidden to be read out loud, okay, in, in a Jewish synagogue. Chapter 16, chapter 23, okay? Uh, so if you're squeamish, you know, um, maybe, you know, you can read ahead and, you know, kind of um, uh, read it for yourselves and be prepared. Uh, but just to warn you, next week it's going to be hard. It, it, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I'm going to have a hard time reading it. Okay, it, it is extremely difficult to read these two chapters that are coming up, and, and for for a reason. Uh, and so, just to warn you for for next week. Uh, and and thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate you. The the examples that we've been seeing. Are they applicable today? 
Yes. Is the word of God, even in the Old Testament, still applicable to now? And thank God it is, by the way. And so, Father, this evening as we uh, have the privilege of being able to fellowship, have the privilege of being able to meet other people, to be able to uh, talk to other people, I, I ask that you would help us to examine our own hearts. And whether it's the trepidation and asking a question or, or the fear or, or the, you know, um, uh, the uncomfortableness of meeting a new person, whatever it may be, uh, I ask that you would help us to be um, encouragers of one another tonight. That you would help us to not only grow in you, but uh, to grow as a, a congregation in you, as a, a people, as a uh, people of, of you in you. And so, Lord, tonight as we examine our own hearts, that we would look at our own lives. Did I, did I, am I relying on the prayers of someone else? Or am I relying upon you know, someone else's faith? Am I, uh, you know, uh, relying even upon something that, you know, I thought I did uh, instead of you? And help us to examine ourselves to see if we actually are in the faith. We actually believe in you. Because no one else can make that decision except for us. It can only be answered by one person, the person that's asking the question. So, Lord, convict us. Help us to examine our hearts tonight. Lord, show us, break through all those barriers that say, uh, the things that I've done hinder me from a relationship with God, uh, that, it, that can be further from the truth. You make the impossible happen and only comes through you. Lord, I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for that. Thank you for saving us. Loving us and being patient with us for so long. Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my family, those that are here tonight. Uh, help us to love you more and serve you more and have that desire to do your will. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless.